Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. I am Lucia Matuonto, and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin! Welcome back to another edition of Carpooling with the RV. On today's episode, we will be discussing the environment. I'm delighted to introduce you to our two guests. We have Alan Miller. Alan is a lawyer and an internationally recognized authority, climate, finance, and policy. He is the co-author of the book, Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now. I'm also delighted to have Stephanie Miller again on the RV. Stephanie, who is of no relation to Ellen, even though they share the same last name, is the author of Zero Waste Living, The 80-20 Way, The Busy Person's Guide to a Lighter Footprint. So, Stephanie and Alan, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Great to be, yeah, great to be with you again, Lucia. I'm super, super, super happy. I would like to start with how did your words begin to intersect? How did you two meet? Well, that's a story. <laughs> um, we were both working for part of the World Bank which is a major institution based in Washington that helps developing countries. And uh, we both were doing work on climate change. And then um, after a few years, she became my boss. So we had several years working together. Stephanie, do you wanna add to that? Uh, yes, you're, you're, you're being very modest, and I have to tell my side of the story. Um, so Alan and I, as he said, we're both working for the International Finance Corporation, IFC, the private sector part of the World Bank. But I was on the business side looking at prospects for doing more on, the ener on energy efficiency investments with our clients or renewable energy investments with our clients, including in the wind and solar sector. Alan was this person I knew by reputation who was one of the people in our institution that knew the most about climate change uh, from a broad institutional perspective and also way beyond our institution. Uh, I knew he had been involved in a lot of the uh, climate talks that had happened uh, globally. And so when I became, I had been working, as I said, in, in financing. But when I moved over to become the uh, director of what we called our climate business department, um, 
for me, Alan was a, a guru in the field, and there were only a couple people who really had that depth of knowledge. And so I still remember that feeling when I started in that role. I felt like, you know, the expression drinking from a fire hose, everything was coming at me at once. And within the same month of when I took the role, I had to go to my very first climate summit meeting, uh, which was in Durban, South Africa, I think. Is that right? Um, yes. That year, 2011. Yes. And so I, I, I sat down with Alan and he he's such he's so professorial and so knowledgeable. He sat down and kind of gave me a, a, a cop, you know, climate uh Summit 101 uh, to educate me about what I needed to know as I was entering this new sphere. Uh, and um, he got me through my very first COP. I think that was one of six that I attended, but I think Alan attended many of those uh, climate summits. So I felt very lucky when I took on that role that I got to start off working with Alan. Unfortunately, Alan retired as I was still in that role, but um, but that's another story. But it was a it was a great start for me in that world. Wow! And Alan is already retired. Well, uh, <laughs> already <laughs> semi semi retired. That's a bit of a story too. It turns out that international organizations like United Nations, World Bank, uh, still have retirement age. And believe it or not, it used to be. 62, which is incredibly young. It's somewhat older than that. And uh, I actually had extensions for a couple of years. So uh, I had to leave. We had many farewell parties for Alan <laughs> and then we couldn't let him go and they kept extending it. So we kept extending his time and would have another farewell party for Alan. Best, Sorry, Alan, go ahead. No, the, the best one actually apropos Stephanie going to Durban, South Africa, was that was just when I was originally supposed to retire. <laughs> and I had gone to so many of these meetings and had so many friends that they arranged a surprise party for me. Only by then it was already decided I wouldn't have to retire then. <laughs> so that was, the, <laughs> that was the first <laughs> of several retirement parties and it was, I think it was the best because it was a total surprise. I mean, literally one of these parties where you walk in and everyone yells, surprise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and you looked surprised. I was, yeah, I did not expect in Durban, South Africa to be the subject of surprise party. So yes, I did um, finally retire a couple of years after that. Uh, but I have continued to be quite involved in international climate matters, and in writing as evident from the book that you introduced uh, that I uh, did with two friends and colleagues that came out just last April. Okay. So, Alan, you co-author Cat Super Climate Pollutants Now, which was published in 2020, if I'm not wrong. Is that correct? 21, 2021. Ah, 2021. A April 14th. <laughs> okay. So can you quickly tell us what this book is about? Sure. Well, having listened to some of your podcasts, Lucia, I'm very impressed because you've had, you interview a lot of people who are great at telling stories. 
And I think one of the challenges of climate change, and I share this with Stephanie in her book, is talking about some pretty complicated things and trying to tell them in a simple and understandable way so that you don't have to have a PhD <laughs> to understand, even if you have to be a PhD to, to be able to do the research. So the, the story that we tell is that if we're going to do much about climate change in the next 20 or 30 years, then we have to reduce sources of warming that don't last forever. And the problem with much of the focus, which is carbon dioxide, the greenhouse gas that comes from coal and oil and gas from burning fossil fuels, right? Is once you release it, it stays in the air for hundreds of years. So you really would have to just stop <laughs> emitting it completely and shut down the whole global economy, which is not going to happen. Fortunately, as we describe in our book, there are some sources of warming that can be reduced much, much faster. One of which is methane or natural gas as we normally talk about it. And one of the key sources is from waste, which is a focus of Stephanie's book. So it's in a way the story of both our books. It's at a high level, the subject of my book, and then to get into, well, how do we do it? What are the details? How can we reduce this waste quickly? Fortunately, we have Stephanie's book. Absolutely. And Stephanie, your book seems to have a slightly, slightly different focus and angle, as Alan was telling us. Can you tell us more about your book? Yeah, I, but I just first want to make a, a plug for Alan's book more forcefully than, than he did, which is that um, his book, uh, like mine, is a short book. Uh, we wrote these quickly and uh, having all the ideas already in our heads, I think, made that possible. Uh, but it is it, written by uh, Alan and his two authors who are very well known in their field, but the book is eminently readable. Uh, and I think it's such an important topic that is not discussed enough and is so urgent to understand this point that Alan just made that uh, we're not going to solve the climate crisis with CO2 reductions alone. And here's a solution that's within our grasp, but we've got to act quickly to grab it, right? Um, and, you know, at literally, Alan's, although I wrote my book a few months before Alan, his book ends where, in a way, mine begins. He's got a beautiful annex in the back that's called Individual Actions to Cut Super Climate Pollutants. And one of the big ones, as he said, is methane. And, you know, so my book is having had this institutional life uh, at, at uh, the World Bank Group for so many years, where I was proud and my proudest accomplishment was working on climate change and helping governments and private sector get on a more sustainable path, I was very keenly aware that there was a disconnect between what I was doing in my job and what I was doing at home. And when I left uh, that institutional job after 25 years, I gave myself some time off, what I call my gap year, and I let loose, you know, I kind of started 
this personal experiment on, well, what could I do if I had time on my hands finally to reduce my own carbon and waste footprints? And I, that's how I stumbled on the idea of you don't really have to do everything under the sun to make a really big impact. But the biggest aha moment I had as I was doing my research was on the profound um, influence that we at the household level have on methane emissions. I had never made that connection. And it's very simple. It's, it's that methane, this extremely potent greenhouse gas, about 86 times more potent than, I hope I got that figure right, Alan, than CO2, depending on the time frame you look at, that one of the biggest sources of methane emissions is organic waste in landfills. And even though, and that's because of the way organic waste, like food or you know, trees, uh, uh, lawn debris, breaks down in the landfill without oxygen. And when it breaks down without oxygen, it produces methane instead of CO2. And that's a very big problem. But what's really exciting about the problem is how much of the solution lies with us, at least in this country and other rich countries, uh, like Spain and like the US, there is so much food waste that happens at the household level. In fact, there is no one single group that is a larger contributor to food waste than the household level. In the US, it's about 40%. We at the household level are 40% of the problem. You can look at farm losses. You can look at restaurant food waste. You can look at grocery store food waste, hotels. No other group in the US contributes more than at the household level. And that's exciting because that means we can do something about it. Food waste is a solvable problem. You don't have to get 100% zero food waste, but you don't have to solve it 100%, but you can drastically reduce it. And so some, one of the chapters in my books talks about some of the things we can do uh, to, to get at that problem. And um, that's the connectivity, the connection between Alan's and my book is he explains so well why we can do something about the super climate pollutants problem and then ends with, you know, individuals have a role to play in this. And that's a little bit where I pick up is what specifically you can do. Just, just thanks, Stephanie, for the plug and for explaining my book so well. But uh, Lucy, I also want to tell you that the uh, ease that Stephanie describes, when I read her book, I the next day started a compost service. So just as one of the many things that she describes uh, as a practical matter, your listeners should know it's becoming increasingly simple and easy to get a compost service, you put that on your kitchen counter, you separate any of your organic waste, and you separate it from what you put out in your trash. Mm -hmm. Very, very simple. Yes. I just really wanted to emphasize the practical um, suggestions that Stephanie's book provides. Uh, I mentioned my personal one was just to start doing compost in the kitchen, and how you know, simple and positive that has been. And um, just again, maybe a little bit of the more, um, I, I've taught for many years and so I sometimes get into my professorial <laughs> mode, but just, and uh, one of the more impressive statistics is that at least in the United States, 
household decisions are responsible for about 80% of greenhouse gas emissions mm -hmm. in the United States. Wow. So there's the direct things that we do like throwing away waste. There's also when, in, when we turn on our air conditioning, whether we get an efficient air conditioner or not. Um, increasingly now we're being pushed to of course get an electric car. I hope you get an electric RV for your interviews. Um, to, and then those RVs hopefully will be connected to uh, wind yeah. machines. Yes, so hopefully. Those, <laughs> hopefully. Um, so those will all, those are all though directly or indirectly decisions we make as consumers, as individuals. So, you know, we often think about climate change as something distant, remote, beyond our influence. It's what utilities do. It's what steel companies do. Well, ultimately, a lot of it comes down to what we do as individuals. And I think Stephanie's book is a wonderful, readable, short book um, that really will convey that message that it is something within our, within our lives. Just add a quick thing. Um, so, you know, in, in my book, I talk about three areas because uh, I don't think you have to do everything to make a big difference. Although, it, you know, I hope my next car will be an electric vehicle. Um, and when I next have to replace my AC system, I hope I, uh, I know I did choose last time the most efficient thing on the market at the time. Um, what I, the three areas I focus on are food, uh, plastics, because that has both a, uh, a, obviously a waste imprint, as well as there is an energy component to that as well that affects uh, carbon emissions hugely as the plastics industry is exploding. Um, and third, uh, uh, recycling. But if we just look at food, you know, this is where it's so powerful. The, there, for me, there are two uh, aspects that are really worth focusing on. And I would hope that at the end of your interview, anyone who isn't thinking about these two things would consider thinking about them. So one is one that we already have in the back of our minds or some of us in the front of our minds, that the choices we make every single day about what we eat, what the next meal is going to be, uh, is that decision-making is probably the most important decision, and we have probably three of those decisions we make every day about how much our diets are going to contribute to the carbon emissions problem. Because there are, you don't have to go vegetarian to make some really good decisions every day about less carbon-intensive eating and just getting off beef and onto say more chicken and fish already reduces your carbon footprint. And if you're, if you're willing to introduce more vegetarian meals, if you're not a vegetarian, that, that is, uh, that's huge. So that's the one aspect that the carbon intensity of food that I think is on a lot of people's minds. And, and I feel that I like to tell people, empower the 95% of us that are not vegetarians to feel like instead of throwing up our hands and saying, well, I'm not a vegetarian, so what can I do to actually look within the spectrum of carbon intensity to find your choices um, more, you know, uh, that work for you. But the second piece, the food waste piece, I just want to um, say a couple more words about, which is that composting, as Alan said, is so important when you're diverting the food waste from that landfill to a compost bin, you're allowing 
you're allowing the avoidance of methane emissions. But even better, I mean, please compost if, it's, if that's possible for you in the area you live in. Um, but if you can't, if there aren't services available or if you don't have a backyard where you can do this, then you can look at food wasted source, meaning us. And what could we do to send less to whatever the pile is, the landfill pile or the compost pile? And I give a few suggestions in my book, but that's again, something we can work on just a couple minutes every day and find we can make a huge dent in that problem. I will tell you my two guys in this household, my fiance and my son have noticed the difference in how little we bring to the curb every week because we are putting uh, less food into the, actually we're not putting uh, very much food at all anymore into the garbage. So that's something we can, we can do something about by looking at our fridge every day and making the right decisions about what to eat so we don't allow food to go to waste. I give more suggestions in the book, but it's very doable. Mm -hmm. And you know, I have a pet peeve when I see food waste. I just cannot accept this kind of things. And we are living in a world that many people are starving. Yes. This mm -hmm. is yeah. also another reason. And um, I feel like people aren't as worried as they should be when it comes to our environment. What do you both think is the most pressing or urgent thing we should do, we should all do right now? That's a great question. <laughs> I think Stephanie already in a way touched on it because I think what's important is for people to realize how much influence they have in their own lives and in the decisions that they make every day. So if you just expand a little bit on the examples that Stephanie gave, it includes things like your decisions about transportation. When, if you can, do you use public transportation versus uh, driving a car? Um, when there, there are just so many things, when do you turn on air conditioning? Um, and at what temperature do you set a thermostat? We have options now for choosing to have our electricity be 100% from wind power, which I'm delighted to say is something that we've done in my house. So I, I, and I would just add that I think when I, as I sometimes do get a bit depressed about how much these problems have gotten worse over my lifetime, the greatest source of hope and inspiration I have is from young people. The, the Greta Thunbergs, the other climate advocates all across the world, not, not only in the United States and Europe, but in many developing countries who now come to the climate negotiations that Stephanie first attended in Africa. And you now see groups of Africans, you see groups from India. And I think the values being absorbed by young people in appreciating that the, their future is so dependent on what happens to the environment. Will the oceans continue to have more plastic than fish, which is the case now in volume? These, these are all issues where I think the first and most critical thing is to accept that we have a problem. And then uh, there are solutions. That's the good news. There are substitutes for plastic. More are emerging uh, every day, as Stephanie knows. And uh, I think the same is true about 
you know, if you just take the subject of, uh, of eating less meat, we now have um, this extraordinary emergence of plant-based meat products, the Impossible Burger, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken has fake chicken nuggets. And more of these products are coming out all the time. Um, and we're actually seeing huge investment in insect-based proteins, which have the potential to feed the planet and address many of the malnutrition issues without doing environmental damage. So I think um, the first and most critical thing is accepting we have a problem, as you said so eloquently, Lucia. Yeah. And then once we put our minds to things, I think what we're seeing is the capability of technology and uh, behavioral changes to happen relatively quickly. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Exactly. For example, since I spoke with Stephanie the first time, I always take my own bag to the supermarket and and also i started eating you know like these um plant-based hamburgers and i really love it so we completely stopped not that i am vegetarian but i really think that it's delicious to to eat plant-based things. And it's good also not only to the environment, but also for our own. Oh, very much better for health. Much, yes. much better. Yes, yes. <laughs> I just, I, I so agree with, with everything you've both just said on the subject. I'll add two things. I think the problems that we're facing, the crises that we're facing, absolutely need to be solved at three different levels, broadly speaking, government, private sector, and the individual. Uh, but the, you know, what Alan said at the beginning, uh, empowering the individual is so important, uh, not just because of the individual actions they can take, but because of the uh, demands that individuals can start to make through their consumer choices and votes for what they want government sector and business to do about the problem. Um, I think the biggest danger, the flip side, and what I've seen over the years and I was doing it myself, uh, was that in, is that individuals can feel so overwhelmed by the problem that they throw up their hands and they say, either they, they have eco-anxiety, which is now a new term, right? And eco-depression. Um, they're actually psychiatrists and psychologists. Now, I just read specializing in this subject. It's amazing. 
But I think the, the danger when you confront people with such uh, daunting statistics and difficult uh, futures is that they can choose to just feel paralyzed, or not choose, but feel paralyzed and do nothing. And what I, the approach I like to take is when you're listening to this podcast and you're hearing about electric vehicles or not eating meat or bringing your own containers or maybe bringing your own water bottle with you, some of these things may not be possible for some people. You know, for example, some people may live in a place where the quality of their water supply is so bad that they have to buy bottled water in plastic, you know. So I think what's really important is that people take where they are, what their circumstances are, whether it's their geographic location or their demographic or their economic circumstances and do what they can. Everybody can do something. We can't all do the same things. So my hope would be that people would take away from this, do what you can, everybody can do something. It's really important. So Alan, you mentioned something very interesting in an article you wrote regarding news coverage. Going back to the way climate change is portrayed in the media and how it misses some important facts that are critical to our understanding of climate change. Can you both elaborate more on this? That is uh, something very uh, near and dear to me as I wrote about that I think goes back to the point about the challenge of the day-to-day -day appreciation of extreme events. So it's at least in our news coverage in uh, the Washington DC area where Stephanie and I live, we get lots of articles about the latest hurricane, um, We had an article about how 40% of Americans live in counties that had uh, some climate disaster last year. What the media doesn't do very well is because it, it does, it's not in some sense newsworthy is to explain the most critical and basic things about climate change because the newspaper is not climate 101. The, news, the newspaper is not where you go to take a climate course. So what I recently summarized were just a few examples of things that are really important to know. Um, one of which is something we've talked about already with you in the past few minutes, which is the importance of the non-CO2, the non-fossil fuel sources. The fact that eating hamburgers can, eating beef. Um, I don't want to pick on hamburgers because you can, you can have a plant-based burger now that tastes just the same and get it at Burger King. Um, so that's one of these key things is appreciating that these are other sources of warming that actually can be addressed much more quickly, easily. And as Stephanie said, with a lot of health and other benefits, it's very important for the environment. Using less plastic, it's another source of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, a second thing is in, uh, that I talk about is how we now have more uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere than at any time in the past three million 
years, which is, whenever I say that, it just kind of <laughs> blows me away <laughs> because what does that mean really? It's, you can kind of understand how do we even talk about that? It goes back so far before human existence, but we actually increasingly have lots of scientific methods to measure these things. And what we know is when the atmosphere was so much more filled with greenhouse gases, the earth was a very different place. The oceans covered much of the earth. There was essentially no polar ice caps, etc. And it's truly uh, not a, uh, a future that humans want to contemplate. So there are a few others of these and uh, um, they are all appear in my uh, latest blog, which uh, your listeners are welcome to find at my, I have an author website where my blogs are all linked. Okay, great. And Stephanie, what do you think about it? Yeah, I, I think the news and Alan said this beautifully, so I don't want to belabor the point, but the, the news uh, outlets are not set up to handle the complexity of climate change. And um, you, you end up only with newsworthy things in the news. That makes sense, right? That's, and um, uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of newsworthy climate events. So the good part of that is that people are recognizing and making those links. But I think the bad part is uh, that most people are coming at that uh, reading of the latest storm with very not being equipped with the basics. So I, I and and maybe it's just not the place of the media to to fill in that gap. Uh, I think one of the things Alan and I have in common, besides our last name, and that we worked in the same place in IFC, as I, I I think I could speak for Alan on this too. We are both passionate about getting the word out about what the problem is and what we can do about it. I think for a very long time, scientists have understood what we are facing. We, we learn more and more every, every year, for sure. Climate science is evolving and has gotten more sophisticated, but we've understood the problem for many years. But there has not been a great way to kind of catch that data and translate it into things that people can actually understand and take action on. And filling in that gap has to be done by many, many people, including the climate scientists, they're getting better at that, uh, but by many other professions, including you know, the media, but not only, we can't hold them accountable for everything. So I, I, I'd like to think that Alan's and my books in different ways try to address some of those gaps. Mm -hmm. If I could add one more thing, I would just say that, you know, I, I started work on this subject in the early 80s. And the way the issue was framed by scientists, partly because of the limited computer models they had, and a, a lot of learning that's happened since, was they talked about 100 years in the future. They talked about what will happen by 2100. And then gradually they got better and they talked about 2050, which we still, we're still talking about doing things for 2050, which gives the impression that the problem is kind of far away. 
So we have these targets that countries are agreeing on for net zero by 2050. That's you know still roughly 30 years from now. In reality, everything we're learning is telling us that we don't have 30 years, that we are being locked in to changes which will be more or less irreversible. And we're finding that every, every bit of warming that occurs is worse and more consequential than the warming that has already happened. So we've warmed over one degree centigrade. We're headed toward probably almost certainly one and a half by uh, five, seven years, between five and seven years from now. And what we're gradually, unfortunately learning is every step of the way, we're seeing that it's worse than we thought. And that's why people like Ambassador John Kerry here in the United States have said the next 10 years is our last best hope. So it's, it's very dire, it's very urgent, but as Stephanie among others have expressed so well, there is so much that we all can and should be doing. So it's, I don't wanna convey as bad as it is that it's hopeless because it isn't. Are you currently working on anything at the present you would like to share, Stephanie? Yes, I think uh, a year ago when you asked me that question, uh, you asked whether I'd consider writing another book. And <laughs> I had just finished the sprint to get the, my book done. And so I wasn't considering it and I'm still not considering it right now. But what I am doing is, and it's a little bit about what I said on, you know, you can do stuff at the household level, but when you start doing that, you also start realizing the systemic issues that exist. And then you want to kind of try to eat away at that too. So I am about to launch a, I'm launching now a grassroots initiative uh, for Washington, DC. I have a few uh, people in my neighborhood that are helping me with it where I want to try to get at the issue of a single-use plastic uh, that we don't have choice about when we go to the stores. And for small um, cafes and stores that want to say that they are to communicate to their uh, customers that they are open to customers bringing their own containers, like you said, Lucia, you started doing, mm -hmm. it, one of the things that they need to do is to let customers know somehow that they are open to that kind of habit, that approach. And so I'm borrowing from an initiative that was originally done in Canada in a, in a suburb of Toronto called Romsey Reduces. And I've just uh, bought these stickers, uh, which I know your listeners can't see, but uh, that basically would be a sticker, a little round sticker that would go in the stores neighborhood stores that want to signal that DC reduces, that they are willing to let their customers bring their own coffee mugs and their own bags to uh, bag whatever they're purchasing from the store. So uh, that's my next initiative. I'm really excited about it. Uh, I'm, I'm making sure I'm not doing anything in contradiction to Washington, DC regulations. Uh, so that's taken a little while to organize, but I, I, I have good communication with the city as well. So very excited about that. And I can let you know how that goes next time we speak. 
Wow, I love this idea. Actually, I'll be publishing an article about this interview and I'm going to add this. Oh, great. Yes, yeah. of course. And Alan, what about you? Besides oh. <laughs> enjoying life. <laughs> First, let me say how excited I am to hear of Stephanie's new initiative. I, I knew vaguely a little bit about it, but it sounds like it's really happening. So that's great. Congratulations, Stephanie. And I'll, Thank you. And you can join, Alan, absolutely. even though I know you're across the border. <laughs> absolutely. And I have a daughter and son-in-law who live in D.C. So I'll be sure that their friends and uh, network all know about it. So my personal activities, I have been keeping fairly busy uh, in my quasi-retirement. <laughs> I uh, have a friend who refers it to it as rewirement as opposed to retirement, which is, I think, a good description. So it includes a few things, but um, one is that I'm actually working with the person who currently has Stephanie's old job the uh, director of the climate department in the International Finance Corporation. And he's very dedicated to creating um, um, a climate training program. So we did some of that in the past, as Stephanie will recall. And uh, her successor has asked me to help in perhaps setting up something that would be not only for internal staff purposes, but that could be used to bring clients and I think that's a very compelling idea because what we often find is, you know, in our little community, we're all being pushed to talk climate change, set climate goals, et cetera. But when we deal with private companies in far off lands, um, it's a very remote consideration for them, uh, but they're interested and they, they do want to learn more. And if we had the program to help them, um, we'd be able to, to do that, so that's one thing. And then like Stephanie, once you get into writing, and I think Lucia, you know this too, once you get started, it's kind of something, one thing leads to the next. <laughs> so uh, I'm not nearly as close to a final product, but I am working on a personal book which describes how I started, which was working on protecting the ozone layer. And I mentioned that, as a way of closing, largely because we did it, we succeeded. And it was an earlier threat to the planet that was based on man-made chemicals, chlorofluorocarbons that were used in spray cans and the like, as well as in air conditioning. And we did it, we protected the planet. And so um, I like to try to look back and say, we've done it before we can do it again. The idea that because something threatens everyone, there's no way we can deal with it is wrong. We have shown that the world can come together and it doesn't require an alien invasion like in some movie. Um, <laughs> it, we can deal with things and um, we did it with chlorofluorocarbons. Hopefully we'll do it with greenhouse gases and plastics. I believe that the work you both are doing is so important. We need you and I'm sure our listeners will learn so much from your work. And I just want to say thank you for stopping by. Thank you so much. And I can tell the spirit of your RV is definitely electric. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs>
backed up by wind uh, turbines um, as wind, the energy wind storage. Yeah. And solar panel. <laughs> Thank you, Lucia. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus.